This is exactly right. Milan Lipoy's exploits as a Pink Panther landed him in jail more than once. But they also made him famous. He even had the unique pleasure of seeing himself portrayed by an actor on a TV show. I'm not a thief. Really? But your fingerprints say that you are? There were others with you in that jewelry store in Liechtenstein, huh? You know, it could be easy if you cooperate. Who was there with you? Who is your crew? Detective. There is Serbian proverb. The foolish fox is caught by one leg. But the wise one is caught with all fours. I know it well. <laughs> Which one are you? The fool or the wise one? We'll have to find out. That's a clip from the Fox TV series, America's Most Wanted. It's a dramatic reenactment of Milan's first encounter with Detective Young Glassie in 2006. The way the show plays that scene, the two men have a kind of grudging respect. Detective Glassie would in fact be the one to later capture Milan and put him in jail once again. It was a coup for Glassie, because Milan Lepoja was a wise fox, to use that Serbian proverb. But eventually, no matter how clever you are, the traps become harder to escape. I'm Natalia Antalava. I'm a journalist based in Eastern Europe, and I'm going to take you into the world of Serbia's most brazen jewel thieves. The most daring and successful diamond thieves in the world. 30 to 40 seconds, they're in, they're out. They've stolen half a billion dollars worth of valuables. Two well-dressed men strolled into an exclusive jewelry store in London and walked out with $66 million in jewels. They're called the Pink Panthers. They're a loosely connected crew of overeducated, underemployed, ambitious young people who rose from the ashes of the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s to commit elaborate smash-and-grab heists all across the globe, often in broad daylight. This is Infamous International, the Pink Panther's story. Episode 8, Milan Lepoja. Last time, we heard how the hard-driving, ill-fated police chief of Monaco, André Malberger, had helped create an international task force to confront this embarrassing problem called the Pink Panthers. And he'd convinced the international crime-fighting organization, Interpol, to get involved. It was through Interpol that DNA evidence from the heist at the Wafi Mall in Dubai was linked to several other heists around the world, including one at the Huber Watch and Jewelry Store in Liechtenstein in 2006. DNA of two men in particular, Dushko Poznan, a sleepy-eyed, darkly handsome 30-year-old from Bosnia, and Milan Lipoja. After his arrest by young Glassie, Milan is thrown into a French jail. He is wanted for the Liechtenstein job. But Milan actually has a much bigger problem on his hands. He's also wanted in Dubai. It will be up to the French courts to decide where he'll be sent to stand trial. Milan knows he's going to need some help. 
Bonjour, je m'appelle Sandrine Pégan, je suis avocat pénaliste et j'ai eu la Hello, chance d'être... Hello, my name is Sandrine Pégan, I am a criminal lawyer. Sandrine Pégan is a native French speaker, so the voice you're hearing is a translator. So, he was defended at that time by an assigned counsel, a lawyer who is appointed by the court, by the state. But this court-appointed lawyer does little to deflect the charges leveled against Milan. And this attorney counsel lost the case. And so France gave its authorization for him to be extradited, to be judged in Dubai. Being judged in Dubai is the last thing Milan wants. And he has just one last chance to change his fate. And so he had the possibility within a very short window of time, five days starting from the moment the decision was made by the Court of Appeal of Lyon. He had five days to appeal to the Court of Cassation. The Court of Cassation, or the CC for short, is France's Supreme Court of Appeal in serious criminal cases. It's my branch. This is the one I work with every day. I practice criminal law every day. So robberies, rapes, murders, all that is something that I know well. And so he had five days after that to appeal to the court and try to change that decision for him not to be sent to Dubai. Of all the lawyers he might have met, Sandrine Pagan is an exceptionally good fit. In fact, I have a law firm in Serbia. So I have organic ties to the country. So because I have a practice in Serbia, there are often Serbs who solicit my services. And I am immediately won over because it's really a community of people for whom I have particular affection. And because he was in the specific prison where there were other inmates that had been represented by me, he learned about my services there and he asked to meet me. It's more than just a general affection for the Serbian people that makes Sandrine Pegand ideal for Milan's defense. She also knows all about the Pink Panthers, and she's impressed by the fact that Milan is one of them. I already knew of the existence of the Pink Panthers. I was proud when an alleged member of the gang sought me out for his defense. I stayed with him for about an hour at the prison. We asked Sandrine Pagan if that first meeting made an impression on her. Even now, more than 10 years later, you can see in her reaction that it did. Yes, so I remember very well that the first time when I went to meet him at the Santé Prison, he was a tall young man. And so just by his posture, by his height, he was already quite imposing. He was a young man who was very handsome, but above all, intelligent. He spoke seven languages at his age. I thought that was incredible. Clients, usually, they are very fine people, but they are not on the same kind of caliber. And he was just extremely smart. And she could feel something else in that first conversation, that Milan was surprisingly self-aware. Compared to other clients, in which I can usually sense that there is some sort of scar or some sort of lack that comes from childhood, Milan was very different. 
He was someone who knew what he was doing, who trusted in what he was doing, who was not trying to justify his actions in any way by a traumatic, sad childhood or an absent father. There was none of that. He was completely unapologetic about his way of life. And he already had a pretty impressive journey in a certain sense because of all the different time he had spent in different prisons across the world. And he loved this kind of life. I will always remember that he told me, maybe I spent so much less time outside than most people, but I lived a much better life. And I just realized, as soon as we had this conversation, that I was entering some sort of extraordinary case. And so, during that hour, we talked about the whole case, the whole procedure, and especially the stakes. And the stakes for Milan, if he cannot avoid being extradited to Dubai, are nothing less than life and death. Consider the fate of his friend and business associate, Borko Ilinchic. Ilinchic had also been part of the Dubai heist. He was arrested in Monaco in 2008, along with another member of the team, Dushko Poznan. The UAE tried to get Monaco to extradite the thieves, but Monaco refused. Instead, Borko Ilinchic was deported back to Serbia, where he lived as a free man. But in 2014, he was arrested again, this time in Spain. And Spanish officials did agree to extradite him to Dubai, where he was locked up in a maximum security prison. They delivered him to Dubai, where he was first sentenced to uh, seven years. Serbian investigative journalist Jelena Zoric. We're hearing her through a translator. But in 2017, they found him dead. It was under suspicious circumstances that they said that he hang himself in prison in Dubai. But maybe that's not the true version of the story. That's the version that, that we know. It's not clear how he died. The press coverage of Borko Ilinchic's death in Dubai is full of contradictions. Some reports claim that he died of a heart attack. He was 36 years old. Others stuck to the official story that he'd hanged himself. Borko's friends and family believe to this day that he was murdered. By the time Sandrine Pegand has finished her one-hour interview with Milan Lepoya, her mind is made up. When he asked me to take care of him, to ensure his defense, quite naturally, I accepted. So I had to say yes as soon as possible, very quickly, before I changed my mind. Especially since we were not talking about a murder. We're talking about a robbery. We're talking about a jewelry store where not a single drop of blood was spilled. I immediately understood that the stakes were high. I remind you that the Court of Appeal of Lyon had already ordered his return to Dubai. So if that decision was confirmed, it would have been catastrophic. If I didn't manage to get him out of this situation, he would automatically be sent back to Dubai to be judged and certainly executed there. Despite the fate that awaits him if his new lawyer fails, Milan has a remarkably positive attitude. 
Even though he could appear to be quite a fatalistic person, he trusted me completely with his life in that moment. And he was never thinking about the after, but always about the now, the present. But Milan also approaches his legal case, just like one of his elaborate heists, meticulously, with attention to every tiny detail. He also knew the law very well. So he had a very good sense of what all the different ways he could get out of there, all the different ways in which he could appeal. And he also knew all the non-legal ways he could get out of this situation because he had a track record of having escaped prison. So he was not terrified at all because he had a sense of all the options that were there for him. In the lead-up to his appeal, Milana is, like always, focused on the story and the way it plays out in the media. He would also ask me for all the press coverage, and I would send him all these articles that I had cut out from all the newspapers. And in a lot of those articles that I had sent him, he was represented as the leader of the gang, as the leader of the Pink Panthers. And he really liked and enjoyed that status. And it's not just about him. There is the overall Pink Panther brand to consider. But he was also really proud of the way that the gang had been represented. He didn't want the reputation of the gang to be tainted. And he wanted that reputation to be respected. And so the fact that no one had ever died or been killed in one of these holdups was really important for him. Sandrine Pagan presents a passionate, deeply researched plea to keep Milan Lepoya out of the hands of the UAE. And so I put together some 30 pages of documents. I found videos of interviews with people who had been tried in Dubai or people who were criticizing the criminal law in Dubai. Milan was present at the hearing. And so he heard me plead and he heard the argument I made for him. But obviously then, we didn't know what the decision would be. And so I got first a phone call and then a written notice of the decision that we had won the case. And I went to see him in prison. But for him, it was a completely normal conclusion to this process because he was so confident in my pleading and in the argument I had made. So he was not surprised. Maybe he wasn't surprised, but he must have been grateful. After all, Sandrine Pagan had just saved his life. Of course, it's not as though this verdict makes Milan a free man. Milan Lepoya agreed to be handed over to the Liechtenstein authorities since there was also an international arrest warrant there. He was not worried, especially because he knew that he was going to go back to Liechtenstein, where he had already been in prison. And I was pretty sure that he was probably already thinking ahead of how he would potentially escape again. He was always kind of thinking ahead, always one step ahead in his thinking. For Sandrine Pegang, Her time with this charismatic young panther was over. So, did they stay in touch? No, we didn't stay in touch. I mean, what would we have done? I would have called him and been like, 
how are you doing? And you would have been, I'm in prison in this country. I'm in prison in this other country. So that wasn't really what happened. As a lawyer, this is what happens quite regularly with clients. We share this case together. And then once the case is closed, we go and live our lives separately. Maybe so, but she has also never forgotten Milan. It is one of the cases that I remember most in that he's someone who really leaves an impression on you. It is one of the most remarkable cases I've taken on. In March of 2010, Milan Lepoe is transferred from France to Liechtenstein to stand trial. For police there, that presents some serious logistical challenges. Police Commissioner Jules Hock was serving as head of the Criminal Investigation Division. Because he was a pink panther and because he escaped by violence from prison, actually the uh, normal airlines were not willing actually to transport him from Paris to Liechtenstein. Therefore, we had to charter our own plane to get him in Paris. And uh, I just actually was in this delegation. I met him. I sat just next to him in the airplane from Paris to Zurich, then by helicopter from Zurich to Vaduz. And just like Sandrine Pegang, Jules Hawk is impressed. He seemed to be a very intelligent man. He had uh, spoke uh, several languages. Of course, he was not giving any evidence to the robbery, so he didn't say anything. But he knew exactly what he was doing, and uh, he did it really professionally. But he was still a thief. Pink Panther Lepoya is uh, different from other perpetrators we see here in Liechtenstein, probably all over the world. But nevertheless, I, I mean, he's still a criminal. I mean, he made a choice and he knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew exactly that that was illegal and it was a crime. He knew that and he did it on purpose. The presiding judge agrees. And uh, actually he was sentenced then for nine year imprisonment. And because our prison is very small, we send our convicts to Austria. And actually he served there his sentence. But uh, after a few years, he was then sent to uh, Serbia to finish his sentence there in a Serbian jail. Milan Lepoya serves nine years for his role in the Huber watch and jewelry store robbery in Liechtenstein. There are no dramatic prison breaks this time around. He quietly serves out his sentence. And then, in 2019, at the age of 40, he's a free man. After almost a decade away, Milan returns to the place he'd grown up and found his criminal calling, the city of Niche that crossroads between Eastern Europe and the West, a favorite of smugglers and thieves. He is greeted like a hometown hero. Serbian investigative reporter Yelena Zoric again. While he was in jail, the people in Niš, they were missing him. He helped a lot of people find employment because uh, it was enough for him just to make one phone call to find a job for a friend of someone he knew. She says that once he's out of prison, Milan is determined to go straight. For real this time. Lepoja also tried to live a quiet life. He got married, he got a dog, he got another dog for his mom and a sister. Serbian journalist Gordana Bialetic remembers seeing Milan around Niš during this time. 
When you see him, you see a family man like any other family man in Nish. He wasn't acting like he's a big shot or something. He was just a usual kind of person of his age living here in Nish. He was a father taking his children to some usual activities and things like that. He wasn't someone that you could see in the street and say he's uh, like a pink panther or he's a criminal or whatever. Gordana admits this description may seem surprising. I mentioned how people coming from outside Serbia see that there's a romantic story, some Hollywood story about a smart thief who ran away with the millions and lived happily ever after. That's one story from outside, from inside, from his mates, from his childhood. You can hear another story about a nice guy and a good friend they, they always liked. But as normal life settles over Milan, pressures mount. It's typical troubles, at least at first. His uh, wife didn't get along with his mother and a sister, which is something that happens very often when families live together in, in Serbia. But also, Milan is restless. But obviously, he was now too bored with this new lifestyle. And maybe that's something that made him start doing drugs, which he didn't do before that. When Milan Lepoy and his friends had come of age and entered the life of crime in the 1990s, there was a clear two-tier criminal hierarchy in niche. At the top were the cigarette smugglers, with their tattoos and their violence, their connections to other criminal organizations outside of Serbia. Below them were criminals like the Pink Panthers, more glamorous, less violent. But in the years that Milan had been away, things had changed. I spoke to my colleague, reporter Ilan Greenberg, about this evolution of criminal enterprise in Milan's hometown. Ilan, so what would you say was different about Niche when Milan finally got back from prison? Well, it's, it's gotten more consolidated. There are these two dominant gangs, the Kavak and the Scalieri. They're pretty ruthless people. These are two crime families, and they now run most of the major smuggling operations. So these two gangs are coordinating with their business partners outside of Serbia, and even though these are criminals and probably not people you'd be inclined to trust, they, they do manage to find a way to work together because they've seen that things are changing and their old business is kind of drying up. So they know they have, to, they have to do something and it just makes sense to cooperate, you know, at least for some period of time. I mean, they're business people and they're dealing with a market, so they figure they need to adapt. Adapt how? So the government in Serbia has finally managed to take over the cigarette business because it's, it's lucrative and it's legitimate. It's just too valuable to let the criminal class reap all the profits if they can help it. So... That top-tier niche find another product they can dominate. And it's actually, it's, it's more lucrative than cigarettes, but it's more dangerous too. And what's that? Well, cocaine. A shift from cigarettes to cocaine sounds like a big move. But from a logistics standpoint, it was more or less the same. Here's investigative reporter Stevan Dojinovic. For criminal groups, in terms of smuggling, was not big difference because they used the same people and they used the same routes, which means the same board crossing. Everything was basically going to the hands of the same custom officers. And for a time, 
things were remarkably stable. Cocaine smuggling is also the field where a lot of the Balkan gangs basically cooperate. It is more and more like if you see these big shipments of cocaine from South America, they'll be basically not uh, the cocaine owned by one gang, but most likely a couple of gangs basically team up to arrange the safe shipment of the drugs. But in 2015, a large shipment of cocaine went missing in Spain. Each side suspected the other. They got involved in this open war. They split the whole Balkan underworld. This open war in the criminal underworld wreaked havoc across the Balkans. Gang members were gunned down in public. Dozens were murdered. And the two-tiered criminal hierarchy that had been in place for so long, it started to become less stable, less distinct. Because when there is a turf war going on, everyone has to take sides. Most of the gangs that are active team up one side or another. And um, Pig Panthers and their groups team up with one side. Like literally every gang was needed in a way to choose some side because things become very heated. It was the war and a lot of people died. The Panthers may have been inclined to stick to diamonds and watches and well-planned heists where no one gets hurt. But they end up without a choice. This is the world Milan Lepoy returns to when he is released from prison. And even though he'd been away for nine years, he's still well-connected. He's well-liked. And so, while he may have had every intention of going straight, it wasn't going to be easy. Here's Gordana Bjelatic again. He came back to Nish and he was recognized as one of the leaders of that big panther group. You can not leave in this area surrounded by so many other criminal groups, they will just not let you alone. Add family stress and possibly a bit of a drug problem, and you can see how Milan might be drawn back in. One day in December of 2021, Milan tells his wife and his mother that he's going out. He'd been in the market for a new car, and he was in touch with someone in Belgrade. They never heard from him again. So the relationships in his family, they were not really good at the time when he disappeared. So it took the family a couple of days to report his missing because they were fighting between each other. So no one actually reported that he was missing. And even if they had reported it, all his family knew was that he was meeting someone who had the exact kind of car Milan was looking to buy. And what kind of car are we talking about? Actually, he went to buy an armored car. Not the car of a typical family man, not a minivan. More the kind of thing you might need if you'd become newly entangled in the blood feud between two warring cartels. Milan had chosen a side. He had connections with the one cartel and other members of the Pink Panthers group, they had connections with a different one. So practically those guys who were members of Pink Panthers, they were somehow related, somehow connected to uh, two different drug cartels. Milan had chosen the Scalieri clan over the opposing clan called the Kavak. The Scalieri was planning to assassinate the Kavak boss. Given his skills and illustrious track record, Milan had been nominated to lead the team organizing the hit. 
with his knowledge of organization. That's what I mentioned earlier, that organizing a heist is very similar to organizing a murder as well. So with what he did previously, he already had enough experience to start moving toward an organization of a murder. He also had very good connections in Ukraine. The Kavak boss is living in nearby Ukraine. So they decided to send the killers to get him there. Journalist Stevan Dojinovic again. And some of them were recruited from town Nish. And Lepoja was the gangster who was originally from Nish. So Lepoja was in charge to recruit some of these killers. The plan was for the five-man team to travel from Nish to Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. They would go to the house of the Kavak boss and shoot him. Milan Lepoja would be back home in Serbia, awaiting confirmation that the job was done. But things didn't go as planned. These killers didn't succeed, so they managed to shoot, but the leader of opposite gang basically survived. According to Yelena Zorich, this was the result of some bad luck. It was really a miracle the way that he survived this attempted murder in Ukraine. The wife of the Kavak boss managed to hide from the hitman. She got hold of a gun and fired at them as they ran to their getaway car. Her husband had been shot five times, but he survived. The failed hit left Milan Lepoja a nervous wreck. He's terrified of revenge and he doesn't hide it very well. And this gets back to the Kavak. So basically, they learned that he fell unsafe and he was looking to buy some better car with better protection. So he wanted to buy a car which will be bulletproof. A plan was hatched. A so-called friend would lure Milan away from home. So they set up a fake offer, offering him that he can buy some really cool car from the guy who was posing as a distributor of the cars. They were pretending they were selling this armored car to him, but actually they just wanted to kidnap him. Milan arrives at a house in the suburbs of Belgrade, assuming he's about to meet the seller of his armored car. So he went into Belgrade, into the house, and this mafia group was calling it Slaughterhouse. And so he went to this house to check car, but actually group members actually captured him. And he was sent to this special uh, hidden room in this house where they tortured him in order to get uh, passwords from his phone. And then when they got everything they need from his phone, he was basically killed there. And the killers document every step of the process, which is how we know exactly what happened. A quick warning that this gets graphic. The thing is that this gang, when they were like torturing and killing people, they were like capturing and saving the photos. And these photos are now uh, most important actual evidence because they were really were taking photos of every step that they did. And then the leader of this gang came with the axe to chop his head. And what was interesting, you can see that he was really old fashioned. And he said, this is not my style. I'm more for the street than the gun. After debating how to murder their guest, the kidnappers put a bag over Milan Lepoy's head to suffocate him. They're unsuccessful. They garret him with a piano wire, one man pulling from each side. They're still not convinced that he's dead. So they slit his throat. And then they chop his body into pieces. There is also two protected witnesses who were part of the team that was dismantling the body, which was a long procedure. The Kavak 
sent photos of Milan's dismembered corpse to every contact in his cell phone before allegedly dumping their remains in the Danube River. Milan's wife waits four days before alerting anyone to his disappearance. Even then, she simply texts Milan's sister saying, your brother is missing. According to Yelena Zoric, local authorities were unable or unwilling to save Milan Lepoya. The police was already following this group. So there are actually videos. There is a video material showing him going into this house and disappearing and never coming back from it alive. It was the secret services of the Western Europe who were involved in the case. Uh, they discovered that Lepoya had connections with the Ukrainian police because the Ukrainian police was also in touch with him. Their secret services were in touch with him when he tried to murder the leader of the other gang who survived. It's been widely reported that a high-level Ukrainian police officer and two of his underlings have been connected to the assassination attempt on the Kavak boss. Could Milan have been working as an informant for the Ukrainian authorities? We can't know at this point, but one thing is for certain. Milan's so-called friends had led him to his death. Even a couple of weeks before he finished his life, he didn't look like he had any problems with anybody, but his friends obviously betrayed him. He didn't get the feeling that, that they were against him at the end. He was definitely not expecting that. As we recorded this, in April of 2023, the trial of Milan Lepoy's killers was still underway in Belgrade. Serbian media has dubbed it the trial of the century. A large mural of Milan now adorns a residential building in his hometown of Niche. For much of his short life, Milan Lepoe was well-known and well-liked in Serbia. In death, he's become a legend. Next time on Infamous International, the story of the Pink Panthers. The criminal world in the Balkans has changed. He did a couple of heights, one of them pretty spectacular, but he didn't have the reason to believe that someone would want to kill him in Serbia. No one is safe. He was in his car when they started shooting at him, and there were 30 shots. And no one is talking. I was not part of the team who did it in Dubai. A few of them I know in person, but I don't want to speak in about those things. And so, a so-called trial of the century lays it all bare. Tabloid media are all over it. You have front pages full of, you know, these gruesome, bloody details. That's coming up on the finale of Infamous International, the story of the Pink Panthers. Infamous International, the Pink Panthers story, was produced by Best Case Studios in association with Coda Story. Hosted by me, Natalia Antalava, and written by Katrina Wolf, Adam Pincus, Suzanne Myers and David Markowitz, with help from Brent Katz and Matt Levin. For Best Case Studios, executive producer, Adam Pincus. Senior producer, David Markowitz. Producer, Katrina Wolf. 
associate producer Hannah Libovitz Lockhart, and consulting producers Julie Goldstein and Louis Spiegler. For Coda Story, reporting by Alan Greenberg, with associate producer Rebecca Robinson. Edited and sound designed by Galen Mullins and Max Michael Miller. Music by Dave Harrington. Archival producers Magda Gora and Paul Dallas. This has been an Exactly Right production. Executive producers Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hartstark, and Danielle Kramer. With consulting producer Kyle Ryan.